Hey, good morning, everybody. Let's jump into some parable, shall we? All right. That's enthusiastic. Luke 16, 1 to 8, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are of people of the light. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Y'all got this, right? Y'all know what this is about? Me neither. That's what makes our Bible so great. What makes our Bible so great is that sometimes things don't give us very clear answers, and that is okay. That is why I love that our church says we're more interested in asking good questions than having right answers, right? For cases like this. But just so we might be able to figure it out, I'm going to give like a very brief, in modern day context, retelling of this story. Shall we do that real quick, just to make sure we're all on the same page? If we were to tell today, it would go something like this. A CEO sees that her CFO is embezzling money. And so the CEO says to the CFO, you are fired. The CFO goes, great. And then the CEO, she says, hey, you have 24 hours to uh, let go of all your financial obligations to this company, and then you're out the door. So the CFO is like, oh, man, I, I definitely embezzled money. We see no pushback, right? Definitely embezzled money. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't work in retail. I don't know. I'm just trying to make something up. I, I you know, I, I, I can't beg or whatever. So, uh, so what am I going to do? I know. I'm going to get more dishonest. And I'm going to get more dishonest, and I'm going to cheat my CEO out of the money she earned, and I'm going to go to all her clients. So he starts going to clients, and he starts going, how much do you owe? And a client's like, I owe like half a million. And, and, and this, C, this CFO is like, make it 250. How much do you owe? I owe 100K. Okay, make it 50K. And what the, what the CFO is doing is going, when I get fired, when I get fired, these people will remember that I did something good for them, or I helped them out, and they'll want to hire me. Right? It's not very honest. It's downright dishonest. And yet... This person is the hero of our parable. <laughs> what do we do with something like this? Here's the thing about parables. Jesus told them, and they weren't meant to be exact answers. They weren't. All right? So when I tell you what I think this parable might mean up here today, y'all might feel very different about that, and that is okay. You're allowed to go back and discuss other ways or other thoughts that you might have around this one. All right? What Jesus is trying to do with parables, and this is the case every time, Jesus is trying to change narratives. The problem is we have a really difficult time changing narratives. We have a theological narrative that we live by. Whether we know it or not, we have this way in which we order our life around a God or whatever we believe, might believe in, right? And this is the narrative by which we live. And I think what Jesus is doing in this parable is changing our narrative. So, who is Jesus talking to? Because whenever we're looking at context and culture, who Jesus is talking to uh, is always incredibly important. And we have to go all the way back to Luke 15. And we go back there, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. All right, how many people, raise your hand if you've heard of a Pharisee before. 
good. You're all well-versed in your scripture. I appreciate that. Um, so what is a Pharisee? Simple. They're pastors, teachers of the law. They're actually really good people. I feel like they get a really bad rap in the scripture. Um, but I'm about to give them a worse rap, okay? So, um, uh, so maybe this is fair, maybe it's not fair. The thing with Pharisees, though, as teachers of the law, as people who are religious, they were also in cahoots with the Roman Empire. And so the best way we can equate them today is think of our American evangelicals, okay? We're sort of creating a theology that, that, that coincides and coexists and even builds up a nation or an empire, right? So that's who Jesus is talking to. They have a particular narrative. And the particular narrative that they had, they've been following for thousands of years. In fact, it would have been Jesus' particular narrative too. And this narrative went a little something like this. All right, you ready? Okay. Disorder reigns supreme. And in this disorder, Israel is brought out of slavery from Egypt. And they don't know what to do. They're wandering around. How do you become a nation? How do you become free? There is tension. There is chaos. And all of a sudden, God shows up. What does God do? Gives Moses 10 commandments. He says, follow these. And then God gives Moses 603 more laws. <laughs> Y'all didn't know that part, did you? We just think it's 10. It's 613. So anyway, and so what basically happens is the people say, huh, we have these laws that will now govern our nation, and there is order amongst us. This is a wonderful thing. And so in this narrative, so long as we follow the law, God's right hand is extended to us and will do good for us. So we read passages like this in Scripture that say, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. And then it says, so he brought them to his holy land, to this hill country, in which his right hand has gained. The narrative says, so long as you follow the law of God, God's right hand is stretched out before you. It's a nice narrative, right? Okay. So whenever Israel's in battle and they win that battle, guess what it was? The right hand of God, right? They followed the law. God's right hand comes. God's right hand saves. This is a good thing. But here's the issue. And this is the issue with this narrative. Just like God's right hand can save, God's right hand can also be taketh away. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Taken away. It can be taken away. So it can be taken away, right? And so uh, we get a passage like this one in Lamentations 2. It says, in fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. Right? He's withdrawing, God's withdrawing God's hand from people when they don't follow the law, when they don't do what is right. And this is the narrative that keeps order. This is the narrative that the Pharisees believed in when Jesus is talking to them. And here's what I'm going to say. This is the narrative that we still believe today. Now, here's the thing with this narrative that we still believe today. No one is actually worshiping God. What are we worshiping? We're worshiping the law that we attribute to God, not God. This narrative says we worship the law that is attributed to God. Do we see the difference? And there is a giant difference because God never truly gives us law. Well, I say this all the time. Scripture is the imagining and reimagining of how we deal with God. These are people who are going, oh, if I follow these laws, God extends God's hand. If I don't follow the laws, God removes God's hand. It's all about following the law. And we still do this today. So let's think about American Christianity, shall we? Have a little fun with this. It's not a difficult subject. <laughs> people say to me all the time, I can't believe, I can't believe that people would see what's happening on the border with, with families being torn apart 
And they would think that's okay and still call themselves Christian. And I say all the time, I believe it. You know why I believe it? Because we have a narrative that does not worship God. We have a narrative that worships the laws of God. And so when we're worshiping God, we see God in each other. We see God in relationship. We see God in humanity. But when you're worshiping the law, it's all about the law. And so you could see families being ripped apart at the border. And you could see them struggling. You could see that. But if you're worshiping law, all you say is, well, they're not, they're not following the law. I follow the law. And if I don't follow the law, God's right hand is going to be taken from me. So I follow the law, you should follow the law. It's a different mindset. The narrative says that we follow and worship the law. We don't worship God. And so we could see someone who identifies as LGBTQIA and look them in the face and tell them that they're not wholly loved by God. And even though they're right in front of us and God says, you could see my face or you could see me in the face of others, we say, well, I'm not following God. I'm actually following the law. And I've attributed this moral platitude around the LGBTQIA community to God. And so I'm going to tell you that, hey, you're not following the law. You're broken. God's right, not, right hand's not going to be with you. My uh, dad, as most of you know, is trans. My dad will say all the time, I'm super surprised that, uh, that when I came out that all my evangelical friends left so quickly. And I said, of course they left quickly. You messed with their narrative. If they are to stick with you, well, then that means that the right hand of God might be removed from them, right? Because they don't follow God. They follow the law or what they attribute to God. That's why abortion is so big regardless of where you stand on this issue. Because when it comes to abortion, people don't have to actually look in the face of humanity. All they're doing is trying to get a law overturned. You don't actually have to engage with anybody with any of this if you're not worshiping God. All you gotta do is worship law, and then you don't have to engage with humanity as, as at all, right? And that is our narrative. That's the way we operate. And so when we follow the law of God, I better do the right thing. I better stick with these morals and platitudes. Otherwise, God removes God's hand. That's why we care so much about heaven and hell in this narrative, right? Because if, if we keep following the law or what we attribute to God as law, then God keeps that right hand extended and we go to heaven. But if we get it wrong, that right hand is taken away and we're going to hell. Do we see that in this narrative, we don't worship God at all? Now, I know what you might be thinking because I was thinking the same thing. I was saying it to myself. I said, self, there's a problem. I said, you do not, you do not, you know, think these things. You, you believe that there's a God of love and a God where you can see God's face in humanity. And I, and, but then I said, but actually, no, this is still my narrative. And I think it's probably still your narrative. We just do it in different, uh, still your narrative too. I think we just do it in different ways. Instead of maybe those big things, what we do is we say things like, in fact, I know we say these things because people have said them to me. You say, oh, I haven't come to church three Sundays in a row. I'm a, I'm a really bad Christian. And it's like, well, who told you that you had to go to church three Sundays in a row in order to be loved by God, right? Who told you that? I would hope you would take some time for yourself on Sunday. I like when you're here, but I like it when you take time for yourself on Sunday. Right? That's, that's just the truth. Or, or people say this to me, well, I don't, I don't believe in purity culture, so I must not be a good Christian. Well, purity culture is kind of damaging. When did you decide that that was a law attributed to God? When did you decide that? Or my favorite one, this is the one I love more, because every one of you say it at one point or another. You go, well, I must not be a good Christian because, because God must not love me because I doubt. Y'all, if you didn't doubt, I'd be super worried about you. Super concerned. I stand up here as your pastor telling you I doubt almost daily. All right? Doubting is a wonderful part of faith. But yet, we attribute 
we attribute these ideas to God. It's not God that we're worshiping. It's the law of God that we're worshiping, or laws that we attribute to God. So all we've done, really, in this narrative is we've made uh, God just a little bit higher than us through a few laws that we either follow or we don't follow. And in those laws we follow or don't follow, God likes it, hand extended. God doesn't like it, hand pulled back. Y'all got this narrative? You feel it? Because I'm about to take a sharp left turn. We feel it? All right. I'm going to take a sharp left turn. Here it comes. This is a sharp left turn. I'll tell you about a time I got in trouble when I was young. One time I had a keg party. And it was, it was impressive. I made a lot of money. Charged people at the door. Five bucks. This is back in the 90s. Five bucks was a lot. And, uh, and then I got caught because my dad was mowing the lawn and saw a beer bottle like in the back corner by our fence. And then I got grounded because, you know, I shouldn't have yet. I had a party, right? And then I did it again. I had another party. But this one was inside. And somebody poured beer in our fish's tank. And my sister told on me because she was afraid the fish was going to die. And I kid you not, I'm not even joking, that 39-cent goldfish lived for another eight years. <laughs> I kid you not. Uh, Harry, that was the fish's name. Good fish. Anyway, so my sister told I got in a lot of trouble, right? This sort of goes with the narrative. Do something wrong. You don't follow the law. You get in trouble for it, right? Then I had a third party. And this one was very big. And the cops came. And they came. Nobody got arrested or in trouble, but the cops just said we all had to leave. And then they told me to lock the door, and I did, and all the rest. And, uh, and uh, I didn't get in trouble for that one, except my neighbor from across the street told my parents. Yeah, that's how I felt. And so my parents sat me down. They said, Jonathan, this is the third time you have been caught having a keg party at our home while we're gone. That's not smart. And I said, it's not, is it? And they said, it's not. And they said, you know, listen, there's a bit of ingenuity around what you're doing, though. You're not 21, but you're getting kegs from somewhere. And then they were like, and you're charging people for them and making money, and people seem to want to come to these things. So there's something good sort of happening here, but not in the way that we want it to be. And I said, that's true. And they said, well, let's change that energy. So they said to me, we're going to punish you. And I said, okay, here it comes. They said, what have you been wanting to do for a long, long time? And I said, actually, I've been wanting to take guitar lessons. They said, okay, your punishment is that for the next year, once a week, you are going to take guitar lessons. And I said, what? They said, that's it. And so for the next year, once a week, I took guitar lessons. And it turns out that I can't play very well because I don't have very good dexterity in my fingers. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a thing. But that's what I did. And that is so absurd. It's so ridiculous that I'm going to age myself here. That happened 24 years ago. The guys that I hung out with then, I still hang out with now. In fact, I saw them last night. And about every other time we hang out, they'll say, remember that time you had a keg party and your punishment was guitar lessons? <laughs> and I say, yeah. And they say, they, you know why they remember that? Because it doesn't make any sense. It goes completely against the narrative. It blows it up. Why, when you would do something wrong, would you get rewarded with something? It's absurd. Completely and utterly absurd. It goes against the narrative. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees have the one narrative, right? Jesus says there's a new narrative. The new narrative goes something like this. Disorder and chaos reign supreme. But this time, it was people who didn't 
follow God. It was people who followed law. And in following the law, there was tons of division. And there were classes. And there were people who were told that they weren't loved or cared for. And this was a problem. And so Jesus comes in and Jesus tells one story about 90 or about 100 sheep and one being lost. And the shepherd going to look for that sheep. And the Pharisees say, that is ridiculous because everybody who owns sheep accounts for one or two of them being lost. And Jesus says, well, not in this narrative. And then Jesus tells another story called the prodigal son. You ever hear that story before? The thing that I think we miss in that story is that the son goes off, squanders a bunch of money, and we forget that the son never actually apologizes at all to the dad. The dad just runs out and says, you're welcome back. This is wonderful. I'm so glad you're back. Right, right, right? And, and the, the Pharisees say, well, that's absurd because the son broke a ton of laws. And Jesus goes, but in my narrative, it doesn't matter. And then this story gets told. The story of an unjust CFO who embezzles money, goes back and cheats the CEO, and the CEO says, well, I'm still going to reward you. Because in this narrative, what happens is Jesus says, I'm here representing God, and God would love to see you break laws one million times, so long as it means you are affirming another human being. And God says, I don't care how often you break laws, so long as you know that I am your child, and that there is no shame, or there is no, no pain, or there's nothing that I can't take care of in your life. And I would rather you break a million laws, so long as it means you're bringing equity and peace to this kingdom. That is the new narrative. That's what it looks like. It looks like this. When we mess up, which we will all mess up, there is a God who says in this new narrative, I'm here, and I'm going to give you... Guitar lessons. <laughs> Guitar lessons. And the Pharisees heard this. And it was too absurd. It was too much. They couldn't deal with it. So they killed Jesus. We know this. <laughs> Luckily, Jesus rises again. And yet that narrative is true for us today. And the truth is we don't believe it. We don't want to believe it. We don't want to believe that the new narrative says, the more you mess up, you are punished by being more loved by God. We hate that. The more that we feel shame, God does not take away God's right hand. God's right hand is extended more than ever. Oh my gosh, that feels just counterintuitive and ridiculous, doesn't it? You know why it feels counterintuitive and ridiculous? We don't love ourselves. We don't love ourselves the way that God loves us. God loves us in such a way where God goes, in my new narrative, every single time you break the law, my hand is not taken away. It's extended even more so than it's ever been before to show you that you are loved more than you've ever been before. And we go, I can't, I, you don't, I'm full of shame. I struggle with this issue constantly and I can't get rid of it. I treat people this way, and I know it's not the best way to treat people, but I can't get over that. I've been abused, and that, that makes me half a person. I've been told by the church community that I'm half a person because I identify or my orientation is a certain way. This society tells me that I'm less than because I've been marginalized by systemic injustice, right? And we go down the list over and over. That hand should be taken away from me. And, and God goes, in this new narrative, in my new narrative, here's the first thing that you have to do. The first thing you have to do is love yourself. Love yourself because this is how I love you. Now, here's the thing. When I preach this, part of me like goes back to my, my, my other churches growing up where I'm like, okay, where's the other shoe? Because it's about to drop, right? You are so loved. God loves you so much. There is no shame. So long as you fill in the blank. 
So long as you do this, so long as you go to this thing, so long as you get rid of those friends, so long as you end that practice. I mean, God loves you right now, but eventually you gotta, you gotta grow up a little bit. That's still the narrative that says there's laws we attribute to God, and that's still the worship of law instead of the worship of God. When we worship God, the first thing we say is we are loved, we are worthy, because we are all children of God, full stop, with nothing attached to it, and that is good news. It's good news. Here's the second thing we do. We tell people that that hand is extended to them as well, because God says one thing and one thing only. God says this, there is actually one law, that law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So as soon as we start loving ourselves and recognizing that there's no shame for us, we do the same for others. Well, this is who I am, and I've been told I'm not loved. Nope, God's hand's still extended to you. That's the new narrative. Well, I've messed up so many times. Well, good. You know how God's punishing you? With grace, with more love, with a more of a hand extended. It's the most absurd, upside-down, backward thing that has ever existed, and it is the good news of this gospel, and it is time for us to reclaim that good news for all of us here, full stop. Amen. Bottom line. <laughs> Bottom line. So here's what I want you to do. Today, tomorrow, and I do it too, because I'm going to wake up. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm going to go, I'm a failure. I'm going to do that. Anybody else do those things? Like wake up with that thought in your head? That's what I do. Thank you. Thank you for admitting that. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go, no, no, there's no failure right here. I am loved so much that the entire structure of this universe is changed by God who tells me that I'm loved this much. That there's no longer worshiping narrative of law. I'm worshiping a God who sees me as perfect. And I'm going to treat myself that way too. Let's do the same. And let's bring that to others. Church, I'm boring you to death by telling you that we are going to change the face of Christianity for the next 500 years. But guess what? By living out this real gospel message, this real grace, this new narrative, we are going to change the face of Christianity for the next 500 years. So go out, believe it, share it with others. And remember that when all is lost, when you are broken, and when you feel like the hand of God has moved away from you, remember that there is a God who wants nothing more than to give each one of you Guitar lessons. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the grace that never ends, the grace that confounds us, that confuses us. We struggle to understand your goodness. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for that love. And Lord, help us to live out the one commandment that you give to love others the way we love you. Let us love in thank thankfulness, God, and let us be selfless in the way that we love because you loved us first. Let us serve others because you serve us first. Give us the strength to preach grace because you've given grace to us first. Pray this in your name. Amen.